Good morning, Four Corners. Today we come to our last sermon on a very well-known, maybe overly familiar, as Will prayed, portion of Scripture, and that is the fall, Genesis chapter 3. So if you will go ahead and turn there in your Bibles with me, Genesis chapter 3. It is often the case that those of us who have been in church for a long time or maybe have been around Christian teaching or uh, grew up in Sunday school, various things, uh, get quite familiar with passages of Scripture maybe and just think we've mastered it. And then we kind of see it freshly. And I hope that, I know for me individually this has been the case, that these first three chapters as we come to the end of what is really a a particular portion of Scripture in the Bible, the, the first three chapters of Genesis. You could see the first 11 chapters as a unit, really. Uh, primeval history, history before Abraham. Abraham appears on the scene in chapter 12. So Genesis 1 to 11 constitutes a section. But within that larger section, Genesis 1 to 3, is its own kind of beginnings section. And I imagine that for many of us, as we've gone through these opening chapters, that there have been a number of things that we've seen freshly, maybe ways that the Lord has applied these early chapters to our own individual lives in new ways, and maybe also things about Christianity, things about the Lord, things about sin, things about our parenting, as we see God as a parent, really, to Adam and Eve that have developed in our own minds. And, and I hope that this will continue as we go through this foundational book of God's Word. So we're in Genesis 3 today. And as we continue our study of this book, we will see that this fall in Genesis 3 is just the beginning. Soon, next week, we're going to read this. And well, maybe next week, I'll say we're going to read this in chapter 4, verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So once again, this fall, the story of the fall, Genesis 3, just the beginning. In just eight verses, we're going to see this, murder. And then in 423, Lamech will say, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Violence, death, murder. And then in chapter 6, verse 5, right before the flood, we get this all-encompassing language. This is, this is kind of universal language, and it's also deep language in the sense that it penetrates to the deepest recesses of the individual human heart. And this is what it says in Genesis 6, 5, just a couple of chapters from where we're at now. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention, listen to this language, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the language we're going to get after the fall. This past week for, uh, uh, for Memorial Day, we went up to see my brother in Kentucky our family drove up there, and we got to go to the Creation Museum. And right next, near the Creation Museum is the Ark Encounter. 
And basically, they have constructed this life-size replica of the ark. It's incredible. It really is. In fact, you know, you go in, it's a museum, and you see all these exhibits and how the animals would have been housed and, and, and fed and so forth. But what's most incredible is just the ark itself, just seeing it from the outside and taking pictures in front of it. You have to get far back far enough so you can get the ark in the background to the people uh, there. But it's, it's just an amazing thing. But one of the features of the ark encounter in particular, as we walked through that, was this section that tried to explain why God flooded the whole world. Why is it that God, I mean, on the, on the surface, this may seem a bit maybe cruel. This may seem a bit overkill. This may seem uh, a bit beyond what we would constitute as fair, what we would say is fair or just or whatever. On the surface, and many in the world would even say that. But one of the interesting features of the Ark Encounter was this section that tried to capture, and it did it imaginatively so because we don't have very specific details. We have, an, we have a sentence like this, and then we have some other language there at the beginning of chapter 6. But they, they tried to imaginatively reconstruct what, what the world would have been like before the flood, at the time of the flood, what, what sorts of evil, what sorts of wickedness would have existed on the earth before God destroyed it in the time of Noah. What we know is that there was great evil and it penetrated to the deepest parts of a person's heart so that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, to the core and always, perpetually, nonstop wickedness after the fall. So when we look at Adam and Eve, we are not dealing merely with the fall of two people. We have to get that very firmly in our heads. We're not dealing merely with the fall of two people, but with the fall of the entire human race. And the early chapters of Genesis are meant to flesh out the fall, really. And he died, and he died, and he died. We see that in a, in a concrete way in terms of the end of physical life, but we also see it in terms of the corruption of man, the corruption of his heart, as I just discussed there in those three examples. As Paul says in Romans 5, 12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10 says, and then Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions to this rule. Isn't that amazing that there have not been, there has not been a single exception, except for the God-man, there has not been a single exception to this rule since Adam and Eve. Not a single exception. Ephesians 2.3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, and listen to this, like the rest of mankind. So, although we're finishing our study of the fall today, we realize that this is just the beginning of a story. Where we're at today, the beginning of a story, a story of human sinfulness that will unfold throughout the pages of biblical history and the millennia of human history. 
And one of the things that I think each of us has to consider this morning, as we look at the beginnings of this story, is that this is a story that runs through every biography. Every single biography. Think about that. What we're reading in Genesis 3 is not this isolated historical incident, but it is the seed. It's the beginning of something that pervasively runs through every single community, every single home, every single church, every single nation. It's the reason why on every level in human society, we find corruption, evil, sin, selfishness, idolatry, hatred of other people. A story that runs through every biography, even yours. And you know, let me just say this. If there's someone here this morning who's not a Christian, part of what it means to become a Christian, to be converted to Christianity, to come to know God, is to come to a realization of this fact. That sin is in us, each of us. It's not something that you, merely something that you do. It is a principle of being that defines you at every level. Mind, affections, will, everything. Defined by this depravity, this corruption. And part of what it means to become a Christian is to come to terms with this reality. And so let me just submit this to you. If if there's never been in your life this this sense that I am a sinner, I, I I have disobeyed God, I am a rebel sinner, my heart is corrupt, my mind is perverse. If that has not happened, that recognition, that realization, you're not a Christian. Because every single Christian is a person who has come to know the grace of God as he deals with our sin in his love, in his mercy, in his kindness. We cannot know God's love and kindness until we know what it means that he has done for us. What he has done for us has taken away our sins. So we are reminded, even as we leave the fall, that really we haven't left the fall at all as long as we have breath. (laughs) We see the fall every day in our own conduct. We see the fall every day in our own story. But in the midst of it all, there is another story. A story of God's grace, his salvation, his love, his mercy towards sinners. And here's the amazing thing. This is a triumphant story. We have these two parallel stories, if you will, running throughout history, marching forward through the pages of the Bible all the way from Genesis 3. And what we need to know is that this story of sin is not a triumphant story. It's a defeated story. The story of God's grace is a triumphant story. So let me ask this question. Has this story triumphed in your biography, in your own life, in the writing out of your own story, has the grace of God triumphed over your own sin? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. Let me just state it very simply. What it means to be a Christian is not to adopt a a set of, of behaviors. You know, in many circles, that's kind of the way it's communicated. You become a Christian, and now it's time to shape up and clean up. Get it together. You're on a new track. 
And there, there, there's an ounce of truth to that in the sense that, that when we become a Christian, we repent of our sins, we turn to Christ, and we put to death sin daily. We die. We, we strive for holiness and to, to reflect Christ's character. Of course, that is true. But at the core of Christianity, at the core of every Christian is this central truth that the grace of God has triumphed over your sin. And so that's the question. Has that happened for you? Don't just come and hear God's word preached and sing these songs and, and, and hear these prayers and have a heart that gets callous to God and hardened against God. Because that's what happens when we expose ourselves to God's word over and over and over again and we don't repent of our sins and trust Jesus for forgiveness. When we do that over and over and over again, we get hardened and callous to the things of God. So consider that this morning. What is your biography what is your story? And how do these two stories come together in your life? The weaving together of these two stories comes into sharp focus today as we look at the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, verses 20 to 24. So if you'll go ahead and go there, verses 20 to 24. And the title for the sermon this morning is Expelled with Grace. Expelled with Grace. Grace. So go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 3, verses 20 to 24. Finishing up this key section in the Bible. This is God's Word. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What devastating words. Go ahead and be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and just ask that this service would, would honor him that we would be attentive to his word and that I would preach clearly and that we would listen to the spirit and that God would do his work among us. That's, that's what we're about today. That's it. If that's accomplished, praise God. So that's what we're asking for. Father, thank you for your glory. Thank you that you show your glory most keenly in your grace. Father, we praise you that we get to consider your grace in unexpected places. We get to see your love, your kindness in the midst of such human depravity and wickedness. And Father, we are just amazed at the fact that you would not just destroy us. That you would not just destroy us in our vileness. God, we know our sin. We know what we have done. We know the ways we have disobeyed you, the ways that we have blasphemed your name, 
the ways we have so readily bowed down to idols. Many of them physical. We, we, we can actually see them. And many of them of the heart, simply in the mind. But God, we are idolaters. We are rebels. And we praise you that your grace triumphs over all of that. Father, would you be merciful to us this morning in opening our ears and our hearts? Would you make our minds attentive? Would you help us to be malleable in the hands of the Spirit? Would he be able? Would he work? We know that he is able. Would he work according to his power? Would he do in us what he wills? And Father, would we listen? Would we respond in faith and repentance? We're just so grateful, God, that we get to be here. We know that even being here is gracious from you. It's a gift. So, Father, would we not take it lightly? Would we use it well? We ask for your name to be hallowed, your kingdom to come in our hearts. We ask that you would protect this service from the devil, each of us who are here. We pray for the kids in the back, that you would speak to them this morning of your grace. God, that they would come to know you personally in deep, abiding relationship. God, we pray for the salvation of all of the children who come through Four Corners Church. We ask that you would give the the teachers vigor and wisdom as they teach. And give me the same now as we go through this end of Genesis 3, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Adam and Eve expelled from the garden. That's our focus for today. But what do we observe when we dig into this passage a little deeper? There are four things, I think, as we go through that we will discover The first is the couple punished. The second is the confidence pronounced. The third is the covering provided. And then finally, the catastrophe prevented. That's what we're going to spend our time looking at this morning. So let's look first at the couple punished. As we take in the passage as a whole, if you just read it quickly and scan it, The most obvious thing that we could say is that Adam and Eve are being punished. It's obvious. It's right there. It's in our faces. In fact, if you would just read this passage very quickly in your Read the Bible Through in a Year program, or maybe read the Bible through in 90 days. They make a book or you can do that. You can do it. If you read through it quickly and you notice this, that's what you would be left with. And probably that's maybe the only thing you would be left with. Adam and Eve are being punished for their sin. In other words, this is a punishment passage, and in fact, it is. It is clearly a punishment passage. Last week, we looked at God's sentencing, his judgment on both the woman and the man, and we looked at three aspects of God's punishment, uh, his judgment. We looked at toil. We looked at tension and termination, toil, that, that the woman would have, would have painful toil in childbearing that the man would have painful toil in cultivating the soil and feeding himself. We looked at tension, the fact that the relationship between the the woman and her husband would be strained, that there would be this desire within her to control her husband, and that the husband's reaction to her would be to dominate her, that this would be part of the human experience. And then finally, we saw as God told Adam that he was taken from dust, And to dust he will return. So the termination of human life, toil, tension, termination. We saw all of those things last week as we looked at God's sentencing, his judgment on the man and the woman. And what we have here 
in our passage for today is the outworking and enforcement of that judgment. God sentenced them in the previous passage, and now we see God enforcing the sentence, carrying out the judgment. So let me kind of walk through the various aspects here to to what we find about God's judgment. First, there is the language of judgment. It is incredible when you get to verse 24, the verb that is used for God. It does not say that he guided them to the edge of the garden and waved goodbye. It's not what he did. It's not the language. It literally says he drove out the man. It's the image really of Jesus going into the temple and driving out the money changers. I mean, this is an incredible image. God is driving out that which is vile and sinful from his holy presence. He is driving them out from paradise. But not just the language of driving them out, but also the language of guarding the the entrance with a flaming sword, in particular flaming sword. That's also an image of God's judgment. Because throughout the Bible, the sword is used as as a symbol for God's judgment as well as fire. And so you just put the two together. We got a a, a fiery sword. We got a flaming sword going in every single direction. God drives them out. This, by the way, this this verb drive out is, is the verb often used as God sends his people into the promised land and he drives out their enemies. He drives out the Canaanites. He drives out the pagan nations who worshiped idols and who stood against his people, who sacrificed their children and did all other kinds of wickedness. God judged them by driving them out. So the language itself tells us that God is punishing them. This is indeed a punishment passage. Second, there is toil. They are driven out from ease in the garden to hard labor in the dirt. God is sending them out for this. Verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden. And notice what it says, verse 23, to work the ground from which he was taken. God had told him before in the sentencing that this is what he would do. He would go on to work the ground in hard labor. And now God sends him out to work the hard labor. Why? Because what's the situation in the garden? Beautiful trees with fruit everywhere. Adam does not have to work the ground because uh, things like wheat and barley are not the primary. That, that's, not, that's, not his ap- that's not what he eats. That's not what keeps him alive. What keeps him alive are the, those fruits that he just grabs right off of the trees that the Lord God himself planted. And in ease and leisure and in great comfort in God, he works the garden, taking care of it, but not tilling the ground. And now he is sent out from this lovely paradise to the outside. And it's on the outside that he will sweat for his food and he will work the ground until he returns to it. And that leads to the third aspect of God's judgment that we see here. There is death. They are driven out from what? Notice, notice the, what's, what's at the center of these verses. It's not just they're driven out from the garden. But there's something that keeps recurring here. And it's this tree of life. They are driven out from eating the tree of life to returning to the dust. The tree of life was what granted them immortality. Now they are sent out to mortality. Death is beginning to take shape. The power that God had 
invested in the tree of life by his eternal decree, by his ordaining of that tree as a means, will now be cut off from these human beings. They will begin to decay and deteriorate. Now, Adam lives over 900 years old, so it takes some time, but it's happening. For us, 70, 80 years, maybe more, but it's happening every day with every new gray hair, with every new ache and pain, every new struggle in these bodies that we have. We can exercise, we can eat well, but eventually we all fall apart. Doesn't matter how many crunches you do. Eventually, we all fall apart. There is death, and it's because we've been separated here from the tree of life. And finally, they are driven away from the presence of God in the sanctuary. Now, this is very important because it doesn't actually say this explicitly. God does not say to them, I'm driving you away from my presence. And in fact, we see God in Genesis 4 communicating with Cain, even after he does his wicked deed, right? And Cain says, you have, you, essentially, you've driven me out from your presence. So we do see the presence of God throughout the pages of Scripture with, with Abel and with Cain. We see him with Abraham, especially talking with Abraham as a friend. We see the presence of God, but there is a, a presence with God in intimacy and in perfect communion that is lost here. They are driven away from the presence of God in the sanctuary. And I want you to notice this. This is very important that we see this. There are two main clues in verse 24 that tell us that Adam and Eve are being driven from the presence of God. Two main clues. The first of those is these cherubim. What are the cherubim? They are angels. They are a kind of angel. We have seraphim in the Bible, a different kind of angel. We have powers and principalities and so forth, all these different ways of referring to angelic beings. We have some angels who are named. We take, gather from other passages in Scripture that, that Satan himself was an angel. He himself was a cherub. He was one of the cherubim. We have angels like Gabriel mentioned, Michael, and others. But here we have a class of angels called the cherubim. And throughout the pages of the Bible, the cherubim are associated with the presence of God. They're associated with being with God. God is enthroned over the cherubim. They surround his throne. It's an incredible picture. They are associated with his presence and they appear everywhere in the tabernacle and temple. Now think about that. Think about that. Who's reading Genesis for the first time? It's the people who are worshiping God in the tabernacle, in the wilderness. Who will go on to read Genesis? The people who are established in the land around the temple in Jerusalem. And what kind of imagery do you get in the temple or the tabernacle? Well, there's a whole lot of imagery throughout the temple and the tabernacle, but one of the most obvious images is these cherubim everywhere. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant sat in the Holy of Holies, and above the Ark were these two cherubim, these two angelic beings with wings, and they were there at the top of the Ark, these small ones. When you get to the temple, as you enter into the Holy of Holies, there are these 
these massive two cherubim. So you would go through the cherubim in the Holy of Holies. You would go through these two massive cherubim and then there would be the Ark of the Covenant with the two smaller cherubim over the mercy seat. And then in addition to that, the veil itself that separated everything from the Holy of Holies where God would dwell, where God's presence would be, had cherubim all over it. This is incredible. And then in the temple, all over the walls of the temple were cherubim. What's my point? My point is, any reader of this would recognize that being separated from this place where the cherubim guard is to be separated from the presence of God. To enter the temple and the tabernacle would be to, pro, to, to proceed through to these cherubim and there in the midst of the cherubim to find the Lord God. And so these, this image of the cherubim guarding the way to, to the garden is meant to convey for us the fact that God's presence is now cut off. It's guarded. The cherubim stand guard just as they do in the temple, just as they did in the tabernacle. So that's one clue to let us know that this is a pushing away, a driving out from God's presence. A second clue is the entrance at the east. We're told in verse 24, at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. Why this language of the east? Well, you entered into the tabernacle and temple from the east. So it's the same direction. Just as you would enter the Garden of Eden from the east, you would enter the temple or tabernacle from the east. All of this meant to convey that the sanctuary where God dwells with his people is cut off. Any Jew reading this in the time of the wilderness wandering would have understood that. Any Jew reading this at the time of the temple established in Jerusalem would have understood this. So the couple punished. They are expelled, expelled from paradise, expelled from immortality, expelled from God's presence. But, as the title of the sermon this morning suggests, this is not an expulsion without grace. And so now, with the last three points here, what I want to do is show us how this expulsion, this punishment that God put on his people was not done without grace, but they were expelled with grace. So let's look at the second point or the first of these gracious indicators. So the first is the confidence pronounced. Look at verse 20, chapter three, verse 20. Let's see God's grace. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of, of all living. Now, we've probably read this verse many times and probably just skated right over this verse. And even some critical liberal scholars have just said, well, it's just been shoved in there. You know, that when, they, when they find something that they, they just don't, they don't like or they can't deal with or they don't want to take the time to try to piece it together, they just say it got crammed in there by some later redactor who just pushed it all together. What is this, this verse 20? It just seems maybe to be a little bit out of place. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Well, the name Eve basically means life or life giver. And in fact, it's very interesting. 
the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which, was ta- which took place a couple of centuries before Christ, translates Eve here, translates this Hebrew word for Eve as zoe, like zoology. The, word, the Greek word zoe means life. It is a little strange to find these hopeful words in this context that is surrounded by death, isn't it? I mean, it's a little strange. Here we have, just before this verse, God says, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. A message of death. And then right after this verse, we have them driven out from the tree of life. That's a message of death. These are words of life surrounded by the sentence of death. Do you see that? Words of life surrounded by the sentence of death. So what is going on here? What do we do with verse 20? Well, many commentators over the years have pointed out that here we have a declaration of faith coming from the mouth of Adam. This is interesting because one of the questions that typically gets asked, in fact, I think our son has asked this question at some point, will Adam be in heaven? And you kind of scratch your head a little bit on that one, you know, until you come to this verse, I think, and you take in this whole passage because you think to yourself, well, I mean, that's a tough one. Did Adam repent? Did Adam believe? Did Adam follow God? What do we do with that? I think we get a little bit of an answer here. Here we have a declaration of faith coming from the mouth of Adam, a declaration of his confidence in God's promises. He has just heard God's words to the serpent. Think about this. In verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking to the serpent, speaking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Eve will have offspring and humanity will ultimately conquer the enemy through a special descendant. And what we have here with Adam is a declaration of his belief in this future reality. It is by faith in God's word that he names his wife life. In other words, God has now spoken and he has said that Eve will go on to have children. Through much pain, she will go on to have children. And God has spoken and he has revealed the truth that one of Eve's descendants, her her seed would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the fall. And what is the response of Adam to this message of God about the future, about what lies ahead for humanity, what lies ahead for Satan, what lies ahead for this fallen world? His response is to name his wife life, Eve. Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I think that's what we have here with Adam. He is assured of what he's hoping for, that this descendant will, in fact, reverse the fall, that this descendant will, in fact, be the deliverer, the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Adam would die even before Noah was born. Adam would die and He would not see it. He would not see the deliverer 
In fact, at Adam's death, we're told that the world is wicked and corrupt at the time of Noah. Well, imagine how wicked and corrupt the world had become at the time that Adam died. 900 years late, 900 plus years later. What was the world like at that point? Utterly overcome with wickedness. The first two children, one is killed and the other is a murderer. These are his first children. Adam looked forward to something that he could not see. He had faith. And here's a question that we have to ask. If you're thinking, if you're scratching your head right now and you're thinking, hold on a second, I don't know about this. You're getting all of that out of this verse? Really? Notice in chapter 11, verse four of Hebrews, it says this, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Here's what that tells us. Abel was a believer in God. Abel believed God's promises. Abel trusted in God. Abel will be in heaven, is in heaven, I should say. What that tells us is that it's quite likely that Adam and Eve, although expelled from the garden, they left the garden with a promise in their hearts. They left the garden with a trust in God, with hope in the future, and they conveyed that to their sons. One said no, was wicked, Cain. And the other said, Abba, God. And he worshiped him by faith. We know throughout the Bible that faith is a gift of God. It comes from his grace. So here in the midst of death, we have grace at work in the heart of Adam. We have a taste of what we will find throughout the pages of scripture. Isn't this amazing? That God will change hearts. He will draw people to himself. He will put trust in the hearts of his people. So what do we do with this? Very simply, I think we praise God that he gives faith to sinners like us. Because here's the thing. You didn't create your own faith. Adam did not create his own faith. When we get to Genesis chapter six and we're told that Noah was righteous or when we open up the pages of Job and we read that Job was blameless and he feared God, are we to, to sit and elevate Noah? Are we to take Job and lift him up as a great hero and say, I wish I could be just like Job. No, none of us, I think, wants to be just like Job and all of his experiences of suffering. But to be just like Job, to be just like Noah, that's, that's what we want to do. We want to emulate these heroes of faith because they believed and we believe wherever there's faith in the world, there's the grace of God. Because apart from God's grace, not a single person believes in God. Not a single person looks up to heaven and grabs hold of God with trust only by his grace. And so if we are to find faith in Adam here in verse 20, which I think we are, then we are to find grace here in the heart of that same man. So we see Adam's pronouncement of his confidence in God, but there's much more of God's grace to be found in this passage. So let's turn to the third point here, the covering provided. So we've seen the couple punished, the confidence pronounced, and now we look at the covering provided. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
Remember that the very first action of Adam and Eve after they disobeyed God was to do what? Conceal themselves. They did this first by sewing fig leaves together to make loincloths. And then they hid themselves from God among the trees of the garden. They are concealing themselves in an effort to cover their guilt and shame. Now that the humans have sinned against God, no longer will they live naked and unashamed before their neighbor or before their God. No longer will they be free of guilt and shame. But guilt and shame will define the human experience from this point forward. And so in response to this reality, they try to cover themselves. So what does God do here? Presumably, they still have those goofy fig leaves sewn onto themselves. Probably did it quite hasty. So who knows what they even look like. It's a silly picture of human frailty, human depravity. What does God do? He properly clothes them, and he clothes them himself. Covering guilt and shame is God's work. Let me say that again. Covering guilt and shame is God's work. How often do we try to cover our own guilt, to appease our own guilty conscience, to try to cover our own shame by doing all sorts of things that make us feel more presentable or better or more accepted or approved of or whatever? And here we get a very basic principle. It's that the covering of guilt and shame is God's work. So he removes that silliness of human beings, that silly attempt to cover themselves, and he properly covers them with these garments of skins. Well, what does that tell us? Garments of skins. It doesn't say garments of, of fur, It says garments of skins. Well, animals do not have to die in order to give up some of their their fur, but they do have to die if they are to give up their skins. And so what we learn here is that this covering is a bloody work. It is God's work, and it is a bloody work. It involved death, what I think to be the first death that we have in the world is this Creature, this animal killed so that its skins might cover the guilt and shame of Adam and Eve. The covering of guilt and shame will require death. You hear that? The covering of guilt and shame will require death. And this covering, in addition to being a bloody work, is also a substitutionary work. Because what are we to make of this animal? This animal is innocent. It's not a human being. It has not sinned against God. It is an innocent animal. And the innocent animal must die to cover the human beings. And I think what we have here is the origin of sacrifices. And when you say, well, sacrifices don't come until later, right? With the, the, the Mosaic covenant at Sinai and the tabernacle and the temple. No, the sacrifices come immediately in chapter four. What do we have there with Cain and Abel? Cain is offering a sacrifice of, of some produce, And Abel is offering a sacrifice of the first of his flock. He's offering a sacrifice of animals to God. So it seems to me that this would have communicated to Adam and Eve that this sacrifice, this death of an animal to cover human sin was necessary. 
We have here the origin of sacrifice, but even more, we have a pointer towards the ultimate sacrifice, who is Christ. He, the spotless sacrificial lamb, remember John the Baptist's words of Jesus, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the lamb in Revelation who sits on the throne. He dies. He's, he's a lamb led to the slaughter. Isaiah describes him in that way in Isaiah 53. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who gives up his life as a substitute to forever cover the guilt and shame of sinful human beings. That's the gospel, is that your guilt, my guilt, your shame, my shame, covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. Here we have a picture in this animal this animal that had to die in order to cover Adam and Eve, that God put to death. We have a picture of Christ. God will put to death his son as the lamb and he will take Christ's righteousness and he will cover us. He will clothe us so that before God, we no longer have guilt and shame forever. This is the work of God throughout the Bible and he shows it to us at the very beginning, Genesis chapter three. Let me just say, this is how God deals with the sin problem. It's not a societal reformation. It's not uh, making sure that we have a better education. It's not making sure that we take away socioeconomic gaps. It's none of these things. God's way of dealing with the sin problem, with the pervasive evil and wickedness in the world, is to put his son to death for us, cover us, with his son's righteousness, his son's blood, the innocent for the guilty. So yes, the couple is expelled, but not without grace, not without hope in their hearts, not without a covering that points to a greater covering. And one final aspect of God's grace to see this morning is in our fourth point, we'll finish up here, the catastrophe prevented. Look at verses 22 to 24. The catastrophe prevented as we finish up this morning. Look, look here. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Why did God drive the human beings out of the garden? Why? Well, in one sense, we've already answered that question, right? Hello? That's easy. Judgment, punishment, a consequence for sin. That's why God drove them out of the garden. But what we find in verse 22 enlarges our answer to that question. Do you see that? Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. This is the problem. Man has become corrupted. 
He experientially knows evil. His heart has become sinful. He is fallen. And what verse 22 suggests, this is incredible. If you see this, notice this. And what verse 22 suggests is that if the man now eats from the tree of life in his fallen condition, do you see that? If he now eats from this tree in his fallen condition, he will continue on forever in that condition. God had ordained the tree as a means of keeping him alive. And now if Adam and Eve reach out and grab hold of the tree of life and eat, they will be established in this condition. Kent Hughes explains it this way. As residents of the garden, they could have eaten from the tree of life and perpetuated their bodily existence indefinitely. Thus, listen to this, thus the garden would have become hell on earth, populated with undying dead, forever living and forever dead. What would it have been like? What would it be like if people like Adolf Hitler lived forever? on this world, could not die? What would it be like if any of us and all of our sin could live on indefinitely all of the desire to fulfill our lusts, to fulfill our desire for power, for things, for money, our greed, our hate? What would it be like if we all just lived indefinitely forever, partaking of something that allowed us to perpetuate ourselves in this corruption and wickedness of life forever and ever. When we come to the New Testament, we learn that God's intentions are not to fill the earth with the living dead, but to fill a new redeemed earth with glorified saints. And this will happen through the crucified Christ and the indwelling spirit. So what did God do for Adam and Eve in the garden? Yes, he punished them by expelling them, but what else did he do? He protected them from being eternally lost. What would have happened had they reached out and taken hold of that fruit and eaten from it after the fall? We don't know. But the text here indicates that they would have been stuck in a permanent condition of death and depravity. God preserved them for future glory. And this is God's work in our lives. He prevents ultimate catastrophe by preserving us every single day. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. This is God protecting his people. You know, we read in John 17, Jesus says, Father, protect them. Essentially, paraphrasing what Jesus prays there, keep them from the evil one. And what we see is that the same Christ, the same God who prayed there in John 17 that his people be protected, the same God is protecting his people here in the garden in the midst of their sinfulness, in the midst of their rebellion. This is grace upon grace. Do you see that? Here, immersed in death, they believed that God was a liar. They believed that God was not good. They listened to Satan rather than God. And God doesn't wipe them out. He shows them this kindness. He shows them this grace. And that's precisely what he's done for each of us who is a Christian. He has shown us great grace. So the application this morning is simple. Will we trust this God of grace? Let me say this to you. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've just been in church for a long time and you kind of have some confusions and you would say that you maybe are, but you're not sure and you're just thinking it through. 
How do you cut to the, to the center of it all? How do you cut out all of the chaff and get to the main issue? How do you get to the core of everything? It's this. Do you trust God's grace? Do you trust in this God of grace? That he meets sinners in their sin and he saves them. He saves them from their sin. From the beginning of human history to the end, behold our God, who is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He is a God who punishes sin, but he is a God who saves sinners. Do we trust that? Christian, do we, re- do we rely on his grace every day? Do we hope in Christ's death on our behalf? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is your only hope. Your only hope in life and death is Christ Jesus crucified for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful for your grace. Thank you for showing it to us in your word time and time again. How you lavished good things upon Adam and Eve. You lavished them with many good things. You gave them such a, an abundance. You gave them yourself. They walked with you, God. They knew you. They saw you in your glory. And yet, they hated you. They rebelled against you. They believed you to be a wicked liar. And you graced them abundantly. And such is the case for each of us, God, who is a Christian. So Lord, we just praise you this morning for your grace revealed even in this unexpected place. And we ask that as we leave here this morning that the ringing truth of God's grace would be in our hearts, that we would remember it, that we would think on it, that we would seek you as a gracious God this week. We would prepare to come back next week to receive your word again, that that you would do new work in, in the soil of each of our hearts this week. And even today, even now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.